few years back, um, Marina and a few of our friends visited Paris. And when you're in Paris and you're a tourist, you, you have to visit the, the Louvre Museum and you have to go and see that famous painting of the Mona Lisa. And I'll never forget going to see that painting because I had the strangest experience. And if you've been there, you probably had the very same experience. Where it's kept, it's quite a small room, but it's just packed with people. And it's a small painting against a big wall. And so one of the problems is this, if you want to see the painting, you kind of need to shove your way through the people. Well, as I was shoving my way through the people, I couldn't help but notice that many of the people who I expected to be looking at the Mona Lisa were looking at me. In other words, they were standing with their backs to the painting and their faces forward. Now, it wasn't that they were looking at me. It was that they had their phones out and they were taking selfies. Now, now, now that's strange, isn't it, right? It's strange because the big thing is not themselves, it's the painting. And yet, you know what a selfie is? It's when you take a photo of yourself and the self is the most important thing. In fact, it was so strange, right? You had this incredible painting. Well, it's, it's a matter of, you know, beauty's an eye of the beholder. But it's this painting that everybody wants to see. And, and, and there are so many people and they're like fixing their hair and they're taking so many shots. And I just wanted to scream out, you're missing the point. There's the painting. Look at it. It ain't about you. Well, as we come to this passage before us this evening, we've got disciples, John's disciples, and their problem is self. They want self at the center and not the Savior. In fact, their problem is is they, they want to get in the way of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Now, the observant among you will have noticed, I hope, we've skipped over verses 16 to 21. Last week, we only touched on verse 16, but we didn't get the opportunity to touch on the verses connected with it. Don't worry. The plan is to look at that section more in depth on another occasion. Now, we're going to look at verses 22 through 36 under three headings. We'll look at verses 22 to 27 under the heading, The Jealousy of John the Baptist's Disciples. We'll look at verses 28 to 30 under the heading, The Humility of John the Baptist. And then finally, we'll look at verses 31 through 36 under the heading, The Glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jealousy of John the Baptist's Disciples. The Humility of John the Baptist himself. And the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the jealousy of John's disciples. Notice the opening verse. It says, after this, after what? After Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. So in other words, they left the capital city of Jerusalem and they now head out into the country. And notice what John tells us that they were doing, John the author tells us what they were doing in the countryside. They were baptizing. 
But in the very same region, in the very, in, in the near vicinity, verse 24 tells us that John the Baptist and his disciples were doing the very same thing. They were there baptizing. So, so, so get this, right? The way this passage is set up, we have two Christian ministries who have set up shop in the same neighborhood doing the same thing. Do you see how this is seen as setting itself up? There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. Now look at verse 25. Now a discussion, dispute, argument arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. That's a really strange verse because we, we, we don't get told that much. We're told John's disciples enter into a dispute with an unnamed Jewish man. And the, their discussion centers on the issue of purification, ceremony washing, put more literally, literally baptism. You know, when I was studying this passage this week, I had to smile. Right down through the centuries, God's people have been debating the issue of baptism. Here it is in the pages of the gospel. There's literally nothing new under the sun. As I said, the, the exact nature of the discussion we're not told, but, but what, what, we, what we get the sense of from the next verses, their discussion seemed to raise concerns among John the Baptist's disciples about Jesus' ever-increasing popularity. I don't know what this unnamed Jew said to them, but maybe he said to them, Hey guys, you know, you and John the Baptist, you've been baptizing out here, you're baptizing loads of people, you're baptizing where the water's plentiful. But look over there. There's Jesus and his disciples, and all the people are leaving you to go to him. So here's my question. Is Jesus' baptism better than yours? Ouch. Well, well, it seems that John's disciples, they, they, they storm off again. We don't know the exact nature of the discussion, but what we know is the outcome. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look! He's baptizing. And all are going to him. Now it's well been said that the way we talk about other people says a lot about how we think about them. The way you talk about other people says a lot, reveals a lot. Do you know the way that these disciples spoke about John the Baptist and Jesus reveals a lot? Notice what they said to John the Baptist. Rabbi, that is, they esteemed him, they admired him. But notice how they spoke about Jesus. He who was with you, to whom you bore witness, they won't even mention his name. In other words, you need to understand this, John's disciples thought much of John the Baptist, but they thought very little of Jesus. They see all these people going to Jesus and his disciples for baptism and they are frustrated, they're annoyed, they're alarmed. When you're in pastoral ministry, you, you often discover that if someone comes to you with a problem, sometimes the presenting issue is not the real issue. So somebody might come and say, I've got a question about baptism. It's not the real issue. 
There's a deeper issue. And sometimes it's the job of a pastor or a Christian member with a friend to try and get to the real issue. I'll tell you what the real issue with John's disciples was. It's jealousy. You see, bubbling under the surface as they watched the ever-increasing popularity of Jesus, they got really annoyed and they really began to resent it. Now let's just press pause for a moment. What is jealousy? The Bible uses various words for it. Jealousy, it's like a same group of sins. Envy, covetousness, it's in the Ten Commandments. To be jealous of someone is to want what they have for yourself. Or to want someone that is not yours. Now, here's the thing about the sinful heart. We can be jealous, envious, covetous about literally anything and everything. We can be jealous of someone's personality. Jealous of someone's position. Jealous of someone's popularity. Jealous of someone's possessions. We can be jealous of someone's appearance, abilities, achievements. We can be jealous of someone's finances, of their picture-perfect family, or their huge friendship circle. Jealousy, right, it's one of those sins that you often don't realize that you are struggling with on a weekly basis. So, you know, when you're at school, and someone gets praise from the teacher that you deep down want, you get jealous. Or when you're at work and someone gets the promotion that you think you ought to have been given, jealous. Or you're a mum or a dad and you look at another family and it looks like they've got the picture-perfect life, they've got the holidays, the home, kids who behave. They feel jealous. Jealousy exists in churches. You may have been jealous today of another Christian for whatever reason. Jealousy exists in the hearts of church members and it exists in the hearts of ministers. It's easy to get jealous of other ministries and other churches. You know, one of the the symptoms of, of jealousy is that you end up resenting feeling resentment towards other people. You can't rejoice in their success. You can't rejoice in what they have. Jesse, resentment, rivalry, competition, all the same family. Well, let's press play again on this story. John's disciples were jealous because Jesus was turning people to himself. They come to John, they make it clear, they say the statement. Now look at John's response. This is, this is brilliant. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, do you understand what John is saying here? John hears the problem among his disciples and he says, like, wait, hold up, guys. The best antidote to jealousy is the sovereignty of God. More specifically, the doctrine of the providence of God. This is how one commentator puts it. 
The best antidote to evangelists is the conviction of the sovereignty of God. We need to understand that we live under the sovereignty of a wise God. And it ought to be extremely comforting to know that what one has been given, or not given for that matter, is traceable ultimately to the providence of God. You are what you are. You have what you have only because of the grace of God. John's disciples were complaining, look at all these people leaving us to go to Jesus and his disciples. John the Baptist's instinctive response is to think, well, God is infinitely sovereign and wise and all that we have is what God has given us. And all that they have is what God has given them. Meditate on that for a moment. You know when you get jealous at work, at school, in your life? It's because you're not looking at life rightly. You think you should have what someone else has. But what you don't understand is that you have what you have and ultimately it's traceable to the providence of God. John the Baptist's knowledge of God helped him as he responded to this problem. But we've noticed the jealousy of John's disciples. Now we're going to look at the humility of John. And and, and honestly, let's be struck by it. Look at verse 28. He says to him, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now John the Baptist said these words in chapter 1. Do you remember it? It was when the religious leaders came up from Jerusalem to interrogate him. And they said to John, who are you? And he said, I am not the Christ. I don't know about you, but I've never had to tell someone, I am not the Christ. But John the Baptist did. And that says something about the significance of his ministry. Hundreds of thousands of people were going out to hear him preach. Hundreds of thousands of people wanted to be baptized by him. Hundreds of thousands of people started to conclude, this man is a prophet, sent of the Lord. He might even be the Messiah. And John says, listen, I am not the Christ. He's saying to his disciples, I'm not the Messiah. It's not about me. It's about him. Notice he, he, he goes on and says, but I have been sent before him. John the Baptist not only knows who he is not, he knows who he is. He is the forerunner. He's the one who's to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the one who's to point people to Jesus. John Calvin's Institutes falls into two books, The Knowledge of God and The Knowledge of Self. John the Baptist knew who God was, how God was sovereign, how God's sovereign providence worked out in his life, but he also knew who he was. His self-knowledge saved him from the crippling competition, rivalry, and jealousy that his disciples were struggling with. It's quite a thought. As people are leaving John the Baptist and his disciples to go and get baptized by Jesus' disciples, 
John the Baptist's ministry was decreasing and Jesus' ministry was increasing. And it made John so happy. Can I ask you a question? What makes you really happy? What was the happiest moment in your life? Happiest moment in my life? April 24 years ago, when Marina said, I do. I mentioned that, so that Marina can hear it. (laughs) I mentioned that because John here uses the a wedding is an illustration to describe his role to his disciples. One of the things that it, when we're, we've been studying John's gospel, and hopefully you've been picking up this, is that underneath every text is Old Testament prophetic imagery. Every single section is rooted and grounded in Old Testament prophecy. And do you know the Old Testament prophecy used to say that God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52 and 62, Hosea, you name it. It's everywhere all over the Old Testament scriptures. And John has actually used a wedding back in chapter 2, the wedding of Canaan, and, and, and depicted Christ's relationship to the church. Well, now as he thinks about his own relationship to Jesus, he uses a wedding. Look at verse 29. The one, the bride, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Observe how John likens his joy to that of a best man at a wedding. Some of you men here may have served as a best man at a wedding. You know what your job was? Your job, of course, was to help relieve the best man of all of his worries and anxieties. Your job was to ensure the safekeeping of the wedding rings. Your job was to provide moral support to the groom. Ensure that he doesn't take cold feet and run away. As John thought of his role in relation to Jesus, he thought of his role not as the bride, not as the bridegroom, but as the best man. In everything, he was secondary. One of the, the great privileges of ministry is getting to officiate at people's weddings. So I've seen a lot of weddings and a lot of happy days for people. But there is a, an increasing trend at weddings, right, that, that isn't so pleasant. It's best men. The focus of the whole day should be on the bride and the groom, but today there's this ever-increasing reality where best men want to take center stage. Before the bride arrives in the church, he's, he's poncing about the place, flinging things, you know, drawing and trying to get people all in the mood. And then at the wedding ceremony, when there's this, after the wedding ceremony and there's the, the reception, there's the speeches, best men often view it as their job to humiliate with humor the groom. And sometimes it's horrible. The best man's meant to be the best friend. He's there to honor the groom. He's there to say, listen, here's some stories. Yes, funny, but, but here's the reason why this man is the right man for this woman. I've been at a few ends where I've cringed. As the best man thought, my role's not secondary, my role's primary. 
Not so with John the Baptist. He knew that his job was to point people to Jesus. His job was to fade into the background. His job was to make sure that as the groom came for his bride, everything would be ready. You know, weddings in the 21st century, the big event is when the, at the wedding is when the doors open and the bride walks down the aisle. In the first century, that wasn't the case. It was the opposite. It's when the bridegroom came. You see, he'd organized everything with the help of his best man. And so look at what it says actually in verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's standing, he's waiting. And who's he waiting for? He's waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when he hears him, he rejoices greatly. And that was John the Baptist. When Jesus came, he rejoiced. When people left him to go to Jesus, he rejoiced. When Andrew and John followed Jesus, he rejoiced. When he pointed people to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he rejoiced. And church, our role is very similar to John the Baptist's role. Our greatest joy ought to come from pointing people to the bridegroom. Now, it's in this context we get John's very famous exclamation. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, they say of John chapter 3, it is the must-read chapter of the entire Bible. Do you know why? Because the word must appears four times. John chapter one, uh, John chapter three, verse seven. Jesus says to Nicodemus, "You must be born again." John chapter three, verse fourteen. The Son of Man must be lifted high. How do you become a Christian? Being born again. How do you become a Christian? Through believing the message.